Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. And now we pray for your word to be spoken, for your word to be received, for there to be great joy in and among your people, in and among all of creation, actually, as words of life, words of hope, words that Jesus himself uh, brings to each of us in our hearts, that those would be the words that we hear. Lord, may anything that comes from me be written off. May everything that comes from you be lifted up. As the psalmist said, may the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, So some of you know, I have two kids. Will is four, Hadley's two. Hadley's our daughter, and she she actually turns two on Tuesday. So if you see her, tell her happy birthday. Uh, We celebrated her birthday early yesterday, which was great. Two-year-old birthday parties are awesome. I mean, it's just like, you can do no wrong. But Hadley had a couple of bumps before her birthday party. And she's fine, okay? This this does not end up with us like on a trip to the hospital or anything. This is typical two-year-old stuff. Uh, Before 10.30 in the morning, she had three different bumps, bruises, things happen to her. Uh, At the end of the day, she's fine. But, I mean, as a parent, you watch your kid bonk their head or do something, it's, it's a little hard. So the first thing that happened is she's playing with her brother, and they're uh, running around the corner in our hallway. And, of course, this happens when you can't see it, right? Every time your kid gets injured when you're a parent, it's like you never see it. Uh, she bonked her head against a closet door, and so she actually got, like, a good, like, dent, like a good gash and, like, a nice-sized bruise. Uh, so that was round one. Uh, round two was when uh, we were eating breakfast, and this is like confession, this is bad parenting. Uh, we had them up on these little chairs we have at our breakfast bar, and they're too high for little kids, but th- my kids love to climb up there and sit and eat their breakfast. So of course what happens when you put your kid up on a tall chair? They're going to fall off. So she had a tumble, that was round two. Uh, no blood from that one. Uh, and then the third one, remember this is all before 10.30 in the morning, right? Like daddy not even like two cups of coffee in. And we take her to the park, uh, actually to the school right near our house, which is a lovely playground, but it rained yesterday, so the playground's nice and slick, but these are hardy Northwest kids. They don't care. They're going to they're gonna go play in the rain. Well, Hadley slips, and she catches her lip on one of these little stairs. Like, not something you think could injure her that good, but she actually split her lip. So that was round three. That was the blood. That was a lot of screaming. So we just went straight home after that, and we said, you know what? This is not a morning for us. This is, we need a break. So here's the great thing. Hadley takes a nap. She's fine. She gets up. She's, she's great. My father-in-law comes up. Uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law live in Gig Harbor. They came up for her birthday. And so my father-in-law goes in and gets her up when she wakes up from her nap. And she's great. Like she's smiling. She's happy. She's herself, which is a little girl who's full of joy, who is, uh, as my grandmother says, she's beguiling. Like, if you meet my daughter, she kind of draws you in. She just has that personality and that affect. She's still herself. She's still who God made her to be. She's still this joyful, wonderful person. She just got some pretty serious gashes. When you see her later, you're going to go, like, come on, that's not that big a deal. Like, she's not that bad. She's still herself, though. That's the point I'm trying to make. What happened to her yesterday was just one day in the life of a kid. But it does not change who she is. It actually doesn't change who she is foundationally. It doesn't change her image per se. It changes her outward appearance, 
but it doesn't change who she is deep down. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the highest level of identity that any of us have. So my daughter is my second-born child. She's great. She's full of joy. Those are all parts of her identity. But the primary part of her identity is actually the primary part of your identity and my identity. It's the imago dei. That's the Latin term for the image of God. People bear the image of God. This is what we're talking about this week in our constant sermon series. Uh, If you didn't grab one of those uh, booklets, I'd encourage you to do so because they're really helpful study guides. And so we're going to be on pages 12 and 13 of that booklet. Seriously, there's no shame in getting up and grabbing one. It's not weird. Go right ahead. And so today we're going to talk about the term, the image of God, the foundational element of human beings' identity. We're going to talk about why that's so important to have a foundation, and we're going to talk about why there's so much freedom in having that as our identity. So if you were here last week or the week before, you know we've been going through this series called Constant, and there's a trajectory to it that follows the pattern of a heartbeat. This is on the cover of your bulletin. But basically, throughout this sermon series, we're taking major themes of the Bible, things like the cosmos and glory, and this week, humanity, and we're saying there's actually four ways, four parts to understanding this. And it kind of looks like an echocardiogram. There's creation. There's decline or disruption. There's hope down here at the bottom. Got to have hope. And then up here is the culmination. And when we look at the trajectory of the scriptures, this theme repeats itself over and over and over again. It shows up in countless ways in our story. And so as we look at the text today, we're actually going to look at a variety of texts. We're going to kind of bounce around in the scriptures. And this is going to be illustrated through the theme of humanity, the Imago Dei, in each part. And so the way that I would summarize what we're talking about today, I kind of already said it, but I'll say it again. The most robust and comprehensive definition of human beings is that we are made in the image of God. That's the fullest definition you could find, being an image bearer, and that's everybody. So let's start over here. Let's start with creation. Okay, and in your bulletin, which is uh, uh, the outline that's in your bulletin, uh, there should be some scripture references. I want to encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. So creation is where we try to answer the question, what is it? Like, what's this thing that we're talking about today? Genesis chapter 5 echoes what's already been said. So Genesis 1.27, which we talked about last week, is here repeated, but I just like the way it was phrased. So listen with me to Genesis 5. I'm actually going to start in the second half of verse 1. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God, the image of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and he named them humanity when they were created. God made us in his image. Same thing that we said last week in Genesis 1.27. God makes humanity, men and women, unique among all creation and that we're designed to express and to share the very image of God. Other parts of creation get to do stuff about God. So Psalm 19, for example, says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They speak to one aspect of who God is. And that's actually a theme throughout the scriptures, that when we look at the natural world, we can see how all the elements that God weaves together proclaim aspects of his identity. But nothing else in creation gets the honor and the high calling and the heavy responsibility of bearing the image of God. 
So there's kind of two sides to this coin that I want to I want to share with us. The first is this: because of the Imago Day, because everybody bears the image of God, everybody has value. Every person you have ever met has value. There's not a single person ever created that we can write off as worthless or without value. This is why we value human life above all other forms of life. So even though human beings are called to care for creation, we're called to care for animals and care for the natural world, we as a culture and as a, as a race, all throughout human society, have put the highest possible value on human life. You know this because every human culture has universally looked down upon murder. Murder is a non-starter in every culture across the face of time. So that shows that we value human life above all other forms of life. Anything that degrades the Imago Dei is therefore negative. Murder being a form of that. Other things that degrade the image of God, that kind of that cast it into shadow, things like ethnic cleansing, which happened in Rwanda not too long ago, which happened during Nazi Germany, that is evil in part because it rejects the Imago Dei. It says this person doesn't have value. Racism, classism, anything that we see engaging in our world today, what's going on in Syria, that is a rejection of the Imago Dei. It's a rejection of saying, no, that person has value. Their life is worthy of being protected. They're worthy of being cared for. Whenever we see that happening, there's a reason that we go, you know what, that's not right. It's because it reduces, it denigrates the Imago Dei. So how does that get practical? Like, what do we do with that in our actual life? This is where it's really challenging. If we believe that other people bear the image of God, it means that we're also meant to reflect that back to them by ordering our lives in such a way that we reflect God's image. Now, what do I mean when I say that? It's not enough to just assume that you and I, by our natural abilities, look and image God, like we do to a degree, but we have to actually put some effort toward it. We're called to further develop and engage that identity by behaving like God wants us to behave. And this is where scripture is just so critical. Scripture is actually how we pursue this without creating a God complex in ourselves, like thinking we need to be ultimately like God. We'll get into this more when we talk about the journey from hope to culmination. There's a couple of steps along the way there that we'll get into in detail. But the big theme I want to point out is that we model our life and behavior around what God desires, and we know that through the scriptures. A Bible scholar that we were talking about teaching team this week made the point that the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel so that they would model the image of God to the other communities around them. So it wasn't just like, behave this way so you don't kill each other. It was, behave this way so that you show people my goodness. You show people my justice. You show people my glory. The scriptures are especially helpful here because the scriptures always push me. The God revealed to us in scriptures always pushes me personally to go to places that I wouldn't go on my own. I'll give you an example. God sets a rhythm for all of life that we talked about in Cosmos. Six days off, one day's off. Six days, six, one day off. Six days you shall labor, one day take a break. That's the model that God set out for us. What's my tendency? My tendency is either end of the spectrum. Super laziness, sitting around watching Seinfeld all day, or workaholism. I can't do either of those things and, and survive. But if I follow God's rhythm, which he expresses to us in the scriptures, six days on, one day off, then I can survive. Then I can thrive. Those are the ways that the scriptures push us to be more like who we were intended to be, but way more than we would ever be just on our own volition and our own will. We're called to be members of a local church. We're called to belong to community. All the witness of the book of Acts is that the people of God are so much better when they're together. They're so much better when they're in community with one another. And that's why I want to bring to your attention an announcement 
in your bulletin about our membership class. We have an east side membership class coming up. You don't got to drive to Green Lake. It's going to be here. We're going to have lunch after church. So if you want to do that, it's going to be on October 23rd. Come belong to this community. Come step in. Be involved. Join up. It's going to be great. I'm excited to see where God takes us. God also calls us out of our own comfort zones. This is the witness of the book of Acts as well. Into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Remember, that's Acts 1a. We talked about that at the beginning of our Acts sermon series. God calls us to that because normally we're just going to sit here and enjoy one another's company. We're not going to think, I'm not going to think too much about the people outside of our church. I'm not going to think too much about the schools, beside the schools my kids go to. God calls us out. So we cannot live in just a holy huddle. We've got to go forth. The point I'm trying to make is that Scripture always raises the bar for calling you and I to a more God-imaging life, a life that better reflects the image of God. That's what Scripture, one of the many purposes that Scripture serves in our lives. So that's creation, right? That's us defining what we're talking about when we talk about humanity. Now let's talk about disruption or decline. What happened? Like what went sideways? What went wrong? So Genesis 3 is the main text we talked about last week. And that's the fall. That's when humanity agreed to believe the lie that the enemy said, and we broke relationship with God. Here's the interesting thing. This goes back to what happened to Hadley yesterday. The image of God in the moment when humanity broke relationship with God was not destroyed. It was not destroyed. I do not think that's the witness of our scriptures. We carry the image of God forward, but we do it differently. How many of you have read uh, The Lord of the Rings or watched the films? Do you remember when evil is starting to spread, the, the Mordor, the country that's ruled by Sauron, it starts to gain its power, it starts to grow. The people talk about the shadow falling. Remember, the hobbits are worried about the shadow of Mordor falling over their land. So people in Middle-earth are worried, all creatures in Middle-earth are worried, about the shadow falling over them. They don't quite know what it means, but they know they should be afraid of it. That's a little bit like what happens to our identity as image bearers. It's not destroyed, but a shadow has fallen over it. A shadow has fallen over you and I so that our image of God isn't disrupted. It just, it's harder to see. It looks different. And that's why we actually have to devote some of our energy to working on that together, which we'll get into more detail in a moment. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans 7 because this tension between both the shadow of our our world, which is sinful and broken and yet glorious, that tension is something that the Apostle Paul understood really, really deeply, like really precisely. So listen to uh, Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 25 for us. So then with my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I'm a slave to the law of sin. If you've ever read any of Paul's stuff, you know that this tension, this back and forth and back and forth, is such a theme in his life which I think is so great because it means the Apostle Paul was human. He was a regular guy, just like you and me, a regular person who engaged the struggle between, as he puts it, the struggle with the flesh being a slave to the law of sin and with the mind being a slave to the law of God. That's the tension. And we see this played out in legalism or license. We often become enslaved to one or the other, keeping all the rules, earning favor with God, or just living however we want to live, doing whatever we want to do. One of my heroes is a philosopher named Dallas Willard, and he said, sin splits the self. Our sin always splits us. It tears us apart. So an example of that for me is when I want to be a good example to my kids. I want to model how to be loving, how to be just, how to be kind to them. And then in my not-so-great moments, I just unleash my potty mouth. 
when I'm at work or wherever I am. Seriously, this is a problem that I have. How can those two things coexist? Because I'm a sinner, because I'm in the middle of something like you are too. This tension that God calls us to when he calls us to live not into the disruption we see in our world, but to live his way in the midst of it. Now, I'm not going to finish this section up by giving us some kind of pithy advice for how to fix this tension. I think it's there, and I think we can all acknowledge that. But I want to share an opportunity to maybe release some of that, and we'll do this a little more before we come to the table for communion when we have confession. Shared image bearing also means shared struggles. We share the image of God with everybody else in the room, and that means we also share struggles with everybody else in the room. So if you want to, I just want to offer this up to you, a sentence you can write down in your bulletin. I must be the only person on earth who struggles with fill in the blank. I must be the only person on earth who struggles with whatever. If you have said that phrase to yourself, if you have heard that whispered to you in the dark night of the soul, you know that that is an absolute lie. And it is a total pathway to shame. I had that thought all throughout my teenage years, even into my early 20s before I got into Christian counseling. That is what I believed about my brokenness. Man, this is really hard. I must be the only person on earth to ever struggle with this makeup of sin. Not true. Cannot be true. Because if I share the image of God with my brothers and sisters, then I also share the struggle. So if you wrote that sentence down, if you put something in the blank, uh, I'd like you to destroy it. I'd like you to scratch through that sentence with a pen. If you type it into your iPad, I want you to write three letters next to it. L-I-E. It's a lie. We do not struggle in isolation. We isolate ourselves. Remember, sin splits the self. It breaks us apart from community. But we do not struggle in such a way that we do not have hope. We're going to talk about this when we get into Romans 5. There's a great trajectory out of sin and pain and into hope. But name those lies. Don't tell yourself that you're the only person who struggles with them. It's not true. And if you hear someone in your life sort of hinting at that, like, man, I must be the only person that has this problem, you can tell them, no, it's not true. And we'll see this built out a little bit more in Romans chapter 5. Okay, so that's Creation, disruption, decline. Now we're moving over here to hope. We've got to have hope. We have got to land the plane on hope. And I've been hinting at it, but let's go there now. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. This is the passage that Prentice read for us, but I'm going to read it for us again. Because this is, in a way, why we feel stuck in our sins and what we can do about it. So listen to this beautiful image from the Apostle Paul. He's talking about uh, Christ being the ground of our salvation. Here's what he says. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Focus on just one phrase in that with me. The gift is not like the trespass. The gift cannot even be compared to the trespass. You and I, I think we do this a lot. We look at one tiny element of our lives, whether it's our sins, whether it's an addiction, or it's a struggle, and we say, that's got to be the thing that defines me. And what the Apostle Paul says here is like, no, that cannot possibly be true because the gift, the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ, vastly overwhelms and overshadows any trespass you and I have. Think of uh, an ocean, like vast ocean, right? You go out to the Oregon coast, you go out to the Washington coast, and the ocean just seems endless, right? Now think about an itty-bitty little toy boat. 
like a tiny little boat, like what my kids play with in their bath, and put that in the middle of the ocean. That boat is the trespass. And the ocean is the gift. We focus on the boat, and we miss the ocean. I do it all the time. Our hope is not in fixing the boat. Our hope is that the one who made the oceans sets us free, and not just from feeling bad about ourselves, not just free so we can manage our behavior, but free to live in the ocean of his grace and to thrive there. And this creates an incredible sequence that I just love at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. This, I would argue, okay, first of all, if you're a linear thinker, time to tune back in. This is so linear, it's not even funny. Secondly, I think this sequence actually only exists in Jesus Christ. I think it makes the Christian faith stand out in uniqueness among all the different religions and faith systems of the world. Only Jesus can make a a sequence like this work. Listen to Romans 5, starting in verse 3. And Paul's talking about suffering and justification by faith. We also boast in our sufferings, knowing, here's the sequence, that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That's an amazing sequence. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. What does that mean? It means that hope is not the absence of sin and suffering. Hope for you and I is not the absence of sin and suffering. It is not a friction-free life. The beginning of this sequence actually depends on suffering to get the ball rolling. So suffering has to happen. And I think that's, again, one of the things that makes the Christian faith so powerful. We take into consideration that suffering is part of human life, that it's going to happen. Hope is when the Imago Dei, people who bear the image of God, who engage our new identity in Christ, we do so in such a way that when we encounter suffering, this sequence comes to mind. Like, I'd love to do this. I would love to have a knee-jerk reaction to suffering that makes me think of Romans 5. Like, when suffering comes up in my life, I would love for my instant reaction to that to be, okay, I'm going through some suffering right now. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Okay, I can do this. Wouldn't that be awesome to be a community of people known by and motivated by the way we encounter suffering? Not to make it trite, not to make it pithy, but to say, I kind of know what's going on. I've seen this movie before. I know what's happening here. God is producing character in me. He's producing hope in me. Uh, This really hits me in the gut as a parent. When our kids suffer, it's not always bad. When our kids suffer, it is not always bad. Is it excruciating to watch your kids suffer? Absolutely. Is it the worst, especially for parents a little bit further along than me, to see your kid not make friends at school or to have medical concerns come up or to have struggles reading? Yeah, totally. It's the worst. But if this sequence is true, it actually is not the worst. It can't be. Our, ch- our kids are not built for impregnable defenses and 100% security. Nobody is. If what's true about the Imago Dei that's witnessed to in scriptures, if that plays out in your life and mine, it means our architecture, the very way that we are built, is for this sequence of suffering produces character and character produces hope. That's actually hardwired into who we are. And so to resist that, to run away from that, it means we're missing out. 
Hope is when our kids and when we become more like Jesus Christ. And I am so relieved by that. I don't know about you. That is a huge relief for me. As good as things began over here with image bearing, as great as things were, as bad as things got when things fell into shadow over here, we still see hope illustrated by the suffering. That is just an incredible thing. And the question I have is actually just really simple. Do we believe this in the midst of our suffering? I usually struggle with that, and I think, I've got to fix this. I've got to make whatever this thing is stop hurting me. And there's some wisdom to that, to be sure. But think about that Romans 5 reflex that I talked about, that knee-jerk reaction to suffering where we go, wait, 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 hold on. This is not just about pain. This is about God creating something in me that's better than even being free from pain. And that's where we get into the culmination. That's where we get into things being better than when they began. Human beings bear the image of God. It was cast into shadow. It was not destroyed. We live in that tension to this day. And the image of God is revealed to you and to me and other people as we endure that trajectory from, uh, to hope through suffering. So what does culmination look like? Well, very briefly, we'll look at a passage from Revelation. So I'm going to read Revelation 7. And again, this is an image to kind of hang our hats on. We're actually going to get very, very practical here. But we need to look at where this is going. We need to look at where time is headed. Time is headed in this direction. This is an image from the book of Revelation about where we're headed. This is Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every nation, all tribes and peoples and all languages, isn't that an incredible vision of how the image of God is displayed through all these different kinds of people. Like, you cannot have a more comprehensive vision of the image of God than people from every background praising God's name. Like, that's amazing. And Revelation, as many of you know, is just full of that. It's full of people bearing the image of God and reflecting it back to the author of our image. And it's incredible. And I love that vision, but I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about the distance from here to here. And what are just some really practical things that we can do on that trajectory to remind ourselves of this, right? Like you could walk away from this going like, oh, cool, I made in the image of God. Time to go to lunch. Like, let's think about some of the ways we can actually land this. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you a few of the things that have been helpful to me. When I pause and reflect on my identity in Jesus Christ, I'm usually at my best. And what that looks like is actually really, really simple. It's a cup of coffee and my journal and time to think in the morning before my kids wake up. And it's looking at the face of Jesus Christ, trying to picture it or going to beautiful places where I feel close to him and remembering who I am in Jesus. That is so different than navel-gazing. That is so different than just like focusing in on ourselves and making it all about ourselves. If we make it about who we are in Jesus Christ, we're not going to make it about narcissism. And that's where the scriptures steer us very, very clear from that. So I take a walk, and I think about who Jesus is. I think about what he's done in my day. I sit down and I journal, or, and I know this is helpful to a lot of us, uh, I'll have a conversation with my wife, or I'll have a conversation with one of my best friends who loves Jesus too. And you walk away from these conversations. I know you guys have had this, and where you go, 
I'm so glad I've known that person as long as I have because they know me in the deepest possible way and they just kind of hold a mirror back to you and go, this is who you are. Who you are right now is not the suffering you're experiencing. It's not the pain and the brokenness that you feel is just crashing in on you. This is who you are. You're beloved. I need people in my life to remind me of that. I'm not very good at remembering that on my own. You cannot be a narcissist and take the image of God seriously. So we need to spend time in the Word. We need to spend time in these relationships. We need to spend time reflecting. That's kind of one way to do it. Another way to do it is to be involved in community. And you're around other image bearers right now. You are around other people who remind you, remind me, this is what God looks like. This is what God's compassion looks like. This is what God's care for the hurt and the brokenhearted looks like. And I just want to encourage all of us. You guys are are way ahead of the game because you're prioritizing it on a Seahawks Sunday. But you're here. Prioritize this time. So order your life and your kids' lives and your schedule so that you can be here. I know it's hard. Believe me, I know it's hard. But order your lives in such a way that this time is set apart time to be reminded of what other image bearers are up to and how you can bless and encourage one another. Come here with a desire to serve. So many of you already do this. Come here ready to serve, ready to connect, ready to encourage other people. This is that great passage from Proverbs where it talks about iron sharpening iron. Just by sitting next to someone else who bears the image of God, you are sharpening them. You are encouraging them and helping them become more of who God intended them to be. Finally, this has to have an outward focus too. Jesus' mission has everything to do with identity. It has to do with us going out into our whole world and living in such a way, not just behavior modification, living in such a way that points to things like what he's called his church to do. He's called his church to alleviate poverty, to end war, to pursue justice, to break down the walls of class and race and all of our dividing lines because we believe that every person is made in the image of God and therefore they have value. So that means we go and do things that bless other people with no intended return. And I could throw out some ideas and suggestions, but I'd rather just kind of turn it back in your direction and say it this way. What are the things that have so grabbed your heart and grabbed your attention lately where you go, that is just not right? And you want to step into it, right? If you're a parent and you know some kids in your, cla- in your kid's class are going home hungry on Fridays, that ain't right. So what, what can we as a church step into and help with that problem? Maybe you've got a friend who's going through grief and you're going, I wish there was some thing that I could help this person with. It kind of breaks your heart to see your friend suffer that way. Well, there are plenty of resources out there that we can point people toward as a church as a way of reminding people you're made in the image of God you have value you're not suffering in this alone how can we help I had a friend send me an email this week about the school he serves and how a kid's mom was murdered and this isn't the first time that's happened at that school it's somewhat normative that's awful and so I emailed him I said what what can Eastside do to help he said just pray for now But I think just knowing that that's real, knowing that we can step into that, that we can come beside people in their very real pain, their very real grief, and say, you know what, I I see the image of God here. Let's move toward that. Let's try to identify where our hope is in this moment. I think that's what we're called to do as a church. So again, to put it back this direction, we've got a huge opportunity at Eastside to turn to our next chapter, right? We're going to celebrate with all the other Bethany locations together next week. What is our next chapter going to look like? In a way... Each of us gets to define that through the things that burden our hearts, that challenge us to want to step out in faith, 
so that we can love and serve others and remind them of the image of God. So, very quick recap. A human being is one who bears the image of God. Best definition of a human being we'll ever find. And that means we have value, beginning here. That means we admit that there is a shadow, but it does not define us. It means that we have hope because of that Romans 5 trajectory, right? Suffering produces character, character, endurance, or got it backwards, but hope. And then we know that iron sharpens iron when we come together, when we fellowship with one another, when we make this time together a priority. So two ways I want to invite you to respond to this. Uh, In a moment, we'll have a benediction. I'll actually invite you to share in that with me. There's a, a short little passage in your booklet that I'll point us toward that we'll share together. But before we do that, we're going to come to the table. And the table is where the people of God gather today all over the world because today is World Communion Sunday. So churches from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every aspect of the image of God, all those image bearers all around the world are gathering at a table, maybe just like this one, with simple bread and simple juice to, wor- to worship Jesus. So I want to invite you to pray with me. We'll ask God to set apart this time. Merciful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible reminder that you uh, would never want us to just dwell in our suffering with no purpose. Instead, you have a trajectory for each of us. You have an identity that is so solid, and that is that we are the beloved. That when we say yes to Jesus Christ, we're also saying yes to the freedom he provides. We're saying yes to the identity that we can never achieve on our own, but that's been given to us as image bearers. Help us through this time to refine the way that we bear the image of God. God, we want to spend just a moment confessing to you in the silence, holding out the content of our hearts in such a way where we're vulnerable, where we don't go down into the darkness of shame, where whatever we use to fill in that blank, where we feel like we're the only person in the world struggling with with whatever. Lord, let these silent moments before we come to the table be a time when we when you wash those things out of us, wash us, make us clean, make us ready for the table. Hear us as we confess silently. Mighty God, we thank you that the gift is not like the trespass. Oh, what a good word that is for our hearts. The gift is not like the trespass. The free gift of grace that we come to this table to celebrate blows away our sins and our brokenness. And so now would you use this simple juice and simple bread and crackers to remind us of your glory, of your justice, of your calling to be people who bear the image of God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.